Do you hear that? <laughs> no. Do you have a ghost? No, that is my neighbor's baby crying. <laughs> what? Why is he crying? He's brand new to the earth. What are you crying about? You have zero problems. I, I have reason to cry. You do not, Nolan. Hey, Ellen Marsh. Hi, Patricia. You guys, welcome to Obsessed Disappeared, the podcast where Ellen Marsh and I tell the stories of missing people by recapping episodes of our favorite show, IDs Disappeared. How's it going in the Jers today, girl? The Jers is great. I'm double vaccinated. <laughs> I'm usually double vodkinated, but not today. Oh, not today, how girl. cute. I brilliantly <laughs> set you up for that. But yeah, I'm double vaccinated. I'm feeling great. I feel like we're going to see each other in person any day now, and we're going to hug and kiss on the mouth. <laughs> I cannot wait to feel your breasts press against my chest. Well, you quickly <laughs> turned that weird. Real quick. <laughs> Join us on the Patreon. We call it the Drama Club. Every month you get three full bonus episodes, and they are really, really good. I can't say it enough. Like, we've been covering Snap. That show is trash. And uh, we just go to town on these people. You know, it's bad stuff, but I have no emotion towards it because... It's so trashy, so I really feel like we like let loose on those episodes, don't you? Yeah, we definitely do. You also get our monthly trivia where it's so fun, you guys. It's a monthly thing that a thousand or more people come to. It's super community-driven. The questions are really fun, kind of hard. We bring in special guests. The play-at-home option is insane. It's so well done. We have actual winners. It's a really good time, girl, right? It's a great time. We had a special guest. Maybe we'll have another special guest. And yes. Also, if you miss it, we record it and we send you the Zoom. It's like re-watching Jeopardy, and then you can, like, learn the answers and look really smart in front of your friends. People should do that. Yeah, girl, you can pick one more thing. We'll tell them about the Facebook group or the Instagram. Which one do you want to do? Uh, Instagram. Every Friday night we go live at 6 p.m. <laughs> Eastern, and we talk about our week. We talk about all the things in the episode that we said or did wrong, and we apologize for it. No, that's actually a lie. We usually just yell at each other, or, I'll, like, I'll cut Ellen off mid-sentence, and she'll tell me how I'm just part of the male problem and how I'm a bad man. I know, that's really what it actually is. It, doesn't that sound like a blast? 6 p.m. every Friday night. Friday Night Live at The Disappeared Pod on Instagram. All right, you guys. Disappeared Season 4, Episode 6, The Dark Ravine, tells the story of the disappearance of Mandy Stokes. Mandy Stokes, a pint-sized, lively grad student, leaves the apartment she shares with her brother to run some errands. She was in school. She had money in the bank. She had a great boyfriend. To me, she had a good life, and she seemed happy. But Mandy never returns. You know, you have this horrible feeling. Oh, my God, where's my daughter? Mandy's family and friends rush to California to search for her and are shocked at what they find. The crowd that he introduced uh, Mandy to weren't nice people. My first thought is, let's follow this guy and bust in his apartment and see if she's there. Her loved ones are left to ponder troubling possibilities. You start thinking all this stuff that could have happened. Amnesia, falling, kidnapped. It's the most awful thing not to know where someone is. Investigators take on a harrowing case that they know will shake a family to its core. And what you try to do with a family is to tell them to hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. 
So big reveal, guys. We are in my hometown. She literally called me, texted me. She's told me twice since we've been recording. Either she's got dementia, which is a real possibility, or she's real psyched that we're talking about Oakland. You guys, I love Oakland. I have lots of hometown pride. Oaktown, O-Town, the nickel dime, the bright side of the bay. I hella love Oakland. Okay, great. Only people from Northern California will understand those references. Don't worry about it. Or the 90s. Is that what O-Town is? Is O-Town about Oakland, that boy band? It is not. Oh. (laughs) No, that that is a no. Okay, great. Oakland, California is a vibrant and sprawling Bay Area city made up of affluent suburbs and gritty, tough neighborhoods. It is here that 33-year-old Mandy Stokes, a petite and feisty graduate student in psychology, wakes early on the Sunday morning after Thanksgiving and heads out to do some errands. We're coming out of the intro, right? And I'm already mad at Christopher because in the intro, Christopher refers to Mandy as a pint-sized, lively grad student, to which I said, Christopher, we do not talk about size, girl. For example, I were the star of this episode, and Christopher would refer to me as a beautiful dumpster-sized podcaster. <laughs> oh, stop. You are working out. Tell the people you are on a fitness journey right now. I'm on a fitness journey five days a week, you guys. I'm going to be the hot one sooner rather than later. You guys hear him reminds me about it like every six and a half minutes. <laughs> From the neck down, it's going to be a journey. From the neck up, I'm almost there. <laughs> you really are adorable. You really are adorable. It's those eyes. They're intoxicating. It's because I'm always intoxicated. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think it's funny that you found issue with him calling her pint size. I found issue with him calling her petite and feisty because like all small women have to be feisty, right? But the thing is, I got to tell you, that's actually problematic and it's not Christopher's fault, but like I feel like if they were making the episodes now, they wouldn't be using those. You can't say that now. Yeah, it's kind of like in the Jeremy Burt episode when they had like a very like not healthy relationship and they called it passionate. I was like, that's not passion, sis. (laughs) That's dysfunction. Yeah, let's stop using those words. And listen, Ellen only knows those two emotions. <laughs> Ellen, those are the only two words you can ever apply to her, so she is the expert, you guys. She's the absolute expert. When she moved out to California, she attended JFK University where she studied psychology because she wanted to delve into the mind and what made somebody tick, what made them do this or that. A Southern transplant, Mandy moved from North Carolina to Oakland in 2005 to pursue her dream of becoming a therapist. So Mandy is a psychology graduate student. The timeline we're working around is about right after Thanksgiving. In 2005, she moved from North Carolina to California to go to JFK University to study psychology because she wanted to be a therapist. We have only a couple of talking heads, but they give us some really good information. And there are some people who are prominently featured who are not talking heads, and we will get to them. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly where you're going with that. And I can't wait to reveal the down bitch of the episode because he might be one of my favorite people we've seen in a really long time. (laughs) We've got Mama Deborah, we've got best friend Melinda, and we've got brother Cody. And they all describe her as having a vibrant personality. She was a great student. And (laughs) while seemingly well-intentioned, I get that Cody, the brother, is trying to explain that she never strayed away from challenging situations. And her brother said... She worked at hospitals and psych wards and did everything she possibly could to really get into the field. 
she would go to psych wards and sit down with black jobs, you know, and, and just hang out with them and talk to them. For her, it was a challenge. Nothing would stop her from going into a psych ward and just hanging out with a bunch of whack jobs. I screamed, Cody, girl. I know. I understand that this is the episode with problematic language. He's like, yeah, but that other bald guy called her petite. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's like, well, I mean, if he can call her feisty and petite and pint size, I'm calling them <laughs> whack jobs. We find out that she's sort of fascinated with studying the mind because her dad was basically her case study. He was a Vietnam vet and suffered from PTSD before he passed away. Yeah. We don't get any backstory on how the dad died or how close they really were. But yeah, the dad was a Vietnam vet. She's the oldest of her siblings. Apparently there's five boys and three girls. Girl? You know what I'm going to say. It's a lot of kids, girl. Too many kids. Too many kids. I mean, I'm not the only one around here who was probably on the government cheese, if you know what I'm saying. You know what I mean? (laughs) So we learned that she moved to Oakland to go- Wait! What? We also learned that she was born with a lot of hair. I thought that was very important. Okay, sweetheart. Go on then. (laughs) Talk about that. Talk about her hair on her head and how they called her pebbles as a baby. Considering that's very, very important talking point for you. I don't want to step on your baby podcasting toes. Oh, thank you so much. My daughter was also born with a lot of hair. My daughter came to us looking like a mid-level manager at like the MoMA. Daisy Judith will forever be the most hair I have seen on a baby. Yeah. Like she came out with more hair than Danny DeVito has ever had in his entire life. So we learned that in Oakland, she moves in with her childhood best friend, Melinda. We're a family. We grew up together since we were babies. Our moms were best friends. and We went to the same church. Our dads worked at the same trucking company. We were at each other's house all the time growing up. So we were family. So to me, it was like, oh, my sister's coming out here to be with me because I just moved out here by myself. We learned that while Mandy is getting her master's degree in psychology, Melinda is getting her master's degree in acupuncture. My favorite thing that Melinda said is that they were both in grad school and they were both so entrenched in their studies that on a Saturday, you could find them in a coffee shop for like eight hours a day studying. I and know. I was like, how do you think those coffee shop managers feel with you parking, just camping at a table, babysitting <laughs> your one single solitary latte for the best? part of a day. If I had a coffee shop, do you know what the seats would be in my coffee shop? Tell me everything. Rocks. Airplane seats. Very (laughs) awkwardly close together or like really uncomfortable stools or like those tables that women lay on for a pap smear. Just something really uncomfortable. You guys, can you please see earlier episodes where I said that Ellen was mean in college and she says she's not like that? I'd like to cite that here. (laughs) I'm sorry that I'm siding with small businesses who use their real estate in order for for people to take comfort and young unapologetic students go and sit for eight hours taking up a seat thereby which a young starving small business can make a dollar i'm so sorry it's funny because you don't look sorry you know what i mean you don't look sorry then in the spring of 2007 mandy's younger brother aaron follows her to california and as the big sister she helps him adjust to life in oakland Mandy's young brother, Aaron, comes out to California to live with her. And we learn that she really wants to be there for him because he had had, like, a drug problem. He was kind of, like, on not a great path. And as they're saying this, they do a slow pan of a 
very sexy shirtless black and white photo. I, Ellen has already said she doesn't want to hear about it, but what am I supposed to do, girl? What am I supposed to do? I mentally made a note to myself and I said, self, <laughs> if Patricia talks about how hot Aaron is, because yeah. we will find out how problematic Aaron is later in the episode, I will expire. Yeah. <laughs> I would 100% make out with Aaron. I mean, it's so predictable at this point. So Aaron lives with Melinda and Mandy for three months. And so after three months, Mandy and Aaron decide they're going to like move out and get their own place. And Melinda's like, I didn't really see much of her after that. And I said, something tells me this moving out wasn't totally amicable. Yeah. It seems like maybe some shit went down right before that move out happened. They don't really go into it. It's also right here that I'm like, wait, where's Aaron? Why haven't we seen Aaron yet in like an interview situation? And we'll get there. We we will get there. As the 2007 fall term approaches, Mandy decides to take some time off from school. She wants to spend time with a new boyfriend, John, who she met during a trip to Las Vegas, but who lives in New York. So Mandy decides she's going to move to New York for this boy. And it's also like there's so much that's being left out here because we're not really talking about like the probably bad decision to drop out of grad school and stop pursuing your dream of being a therapist to go live with this guy in New York. By the way, the actor playing the boyfriend is 1000% the same actor playing little brother Aaron. I'm just saying. Spring for two actors disappeared. <laughs> just with a beanie on. They, they're but just literally, like, they give him a, be- a beanie on. <laughs> Totally different person, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> don't worry, it's gonna be blurry. All of our reenactments are blurry, girl. Don't worry, no one's gonna know. They're all blurred out. It's the same four people on a rotation. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> So it's Sunday, November 25th. This is the day that she goes missing. We are told that she and Aaron, her brother slash roommate, wake up early. For some reason, she goes to an ATM to get money. They come back to the apartment and they're standing outside the apartment and all of a sudden they're fighting. Now remember, like, she's leaving. He really didn't want her to leave. She's moving to New York. But, like, witnesses would later say that the fight was about money and was about the family. And apparently it was, like, a heated argument. And it was, like, two hours long. We find out later in the episode they were fighting from like eight to 10. I was like, that is some deliberation. Like that is intense. A two hour fight. I mean, you got me 20 minutes tops and then some kind of resolution needs to happen or I am slamming the door and storming out. Two hours of fighting? Aaron then takes his morning shower. Mandy knocks on the door and tells him she is going out to run some errands. She grabs her cell phone, wallet and keys and leaves the apartment. Where she was headed or whom she was going to meet remains a mystery because this would be the last time Mandy Stokes is seen before she disappears. All of a sudden, like, Aaron is in the shower, and also this actor playing Aaron who's in the shower was feeling very self-conscious about his body. Yeah, because he was just peeking out. (laughs) But also, it should be said that this reenactment about Aaron hopping in the shower is all his retelling of the story. That's all they have. So we find out later that this is his retelling of the last time that Mandy was seen. And we'll get, like, another version from Witnesses in a minute. Right, and so he alleges that he hopped in the shower and then Mandy knocked on the door and was like, I'm going to run errands. Also, the way this scene was directed, like he's in the shower and she walks all the way into the bathroom. You know how like that would just never happen? Like you only do that with your spouse or like your person. Like you would never do that with your sibling where you would just like fully walk into the bathroom
bathroom while they're in the shower. That is disgusting. Literally never. My brothers come and visit me all the time. I don't think I've seen my brothers so much with their shirt off yeah. in like 20 years. I've seen your brother with his shirt off, like, but it, like in my brain. Yeah, I walked into that one. I... <laughs> Absolutely, 100% walked into that one. I'm going to take that on me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's on me? Yeah. So I can't even get mad. All right? So we're told that, that, like, this is when she goes out to do errands. And I said, I just want to point out for the record that I hate doing errands as much as I hate camping. Like, I feel like when you're doing errands, you have a slightly better chance of not running into Bigfoot, but it's equally as awful. Do you know what I mean? No, I love errands. I love you errands. You and I love both. Oh, yeah, my God. I love, I love an errand. I love a to-do list. I love writing a to-do list, and I love checking it off. It's like a gift from the baby Jesus right in my hand to put a check next to that to-do list. Whereas I really, as somebody who runs a company, I really like showing up to the office and doing the things I remember to do, leaving early sometimes, and then getting into bed at eight o'clock, and then those stress and anxiety of all the things I remember I didn't do come crashing down on me. That seems like a good way to do it, right? Yeah. Why are you the way that you are? (laughs) I don't know. I really don't know, girl. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So... Mandy, we're told, then grabs her cell phone, her wallet, her keys, and she heads out. And that is the last time we're told by Aaron that anyone sees Mandy. And that was Sunday. So now it's Monday, the next day. Mandy has not been home since the day before. Aaron calls his mom to say that, like, Mandy didn't come home yesterday. And I just said, well, here we go again. Here we go again with people not being worried because somebody just apparently used to take solo trips by themselves all the time. At this point, Some of her friends and family members believe there's a fairly simple explanation. Mandy would sometimes take short trips. I remember thinking that it was not that big of a deal. She had just been gone for a couple days. I thought maybe she had gone off with one of her friends and, you know, decided to take a trip. I could have seen her doing that to clear her head. We're at like the sixth or seventh time we've heard that people just magically take trips by themselves and don't tell anyone about it. I'm starting to think we're the problem. I, I mean, uh, like, is, is it us? Have we been doing life wrong this whole time? Uh, my instinct is to say yes. You know what okay. I mean? For somebody like me, there's only one answer to that question. The answer is yes. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you and I, whenever there's a problem, you and I are both the people that are like, what did I do? What did I do? I did something. Tell me what I did. I'll fix it. I'll make it right. I'll apologize right now. Melinda, the best friend, also says, I'm not overreactive when it comes to her. And I said, yeah, I'm a whole different kind of friend than Melinda. Yeah. I'm a whole different kind of friend. <laughs> yeah. You know? I'm going to tell you right now, the first time somebody calls me and says, like, Daisy isn't where she's supposed to be at the time she's supposed to be there, my immediate reaction is going to be, she's dead. Who fucking killed my daughter? I will be making a podcast about it in 30 seconds. <laughs> you, like, make a podcast about it before you, like, make any calls to the police. You're like, one <laughs> second! It says on air, I'm recording! <laughs> So everyone is sort of like making excuses and then Mama Deborah's like, okay. By the next morning, Mandy still has not returned any calls or come back to the apartment, nor has any missing persons report been filed. I talked to Aaron and Aaron's like, well, I think I called the wrong person and then they told me I had to wait 24 hours. I'm like, Aaron, okay. So from there on, I kept calling the police. I knew by Tuesday... Something was terribly wrong. It appeared 
to me like Aaron had made a laundry list of excuses to his mother as to why he didn't make a missing persons report. Because we're going to find out that Mama Deborah does that. So she calls the cops. She files a missing persons report. The cops go to the apartment. And brother Aaron, who, like, did not call the cops, won't let them in. He won't let the police come into the apartment to, like, look around and see if they can find any evidence as to where Mandy might have gone. Yeah, and just to add in there, Mama Deborah had to go through great lengths. So she had to call the Oakland Police Department from out of state, which we already know is really, really challenging for people to do. She had to get her license plate number, which I texted my mom this morning, and I was like, do you even know what kind of car I drive? And then she was like, a Jetta? Question mark. And then I was like, do you know my license plate number? Like, that's just not information that people have. So Mama Deborah had to call the insurance company, explain it to the insurance company, in order to get any information to the Oakland Police Department because Brother Aaron was being a dick dong and not helping at all. And the thing about it is that, like, of course you immediately jump to, like, well, then he fucking killed her and doesn't, like, want anyone in the apartment. But the mom is very much an Aaron defender, and I don't appreciate it. The mom is pointing out, like, Aaron is a drug addict. Like, maybe what was happening was that he had drugs in the house, and he didn't want the cops to come in because they would have found the drugs. Which is just, you know, still not a good enough reason when your sister is missing, but we aren't thinking like addicts. Right. So, thank God for Mama Deborah and her due diligence. Because she found the license plate number they were able to find the car and it had indeed been towed and it was currently sitting in an impound in downtown Oakland. One of the cops who's telling us about this goes, yeah, so now we know we have the car and so of course our number one fear is we're going to pop the trunk and the body's going to be back there. Girl! I love that detective. I was like... Do you want to come on our podcast? Because you went from zero to crazy in no time, and I am here for it. I am loving this guy. Investigators open the trunk and do not find Mandy. But they do find her cell phone, wallet, and keys inside the glove box. Most time, if you go missing voluntarily, you'll take those things with you. The police call Mandy's mother to deliver the unsettling news that they have found some of Mandy's personal effects in the car, but that there is no sign of Mandy. Turns out there was no body in the trunk, but they did find her cell phone, her wallet, and her keys inside the glove box. Her keys? Yeah. What the cops instantly say is, like, if she was, like, running off to start a new life, which she's not doing that, she would have taken those things, right? To me, this feels like the biggest indication that she died by suicide. Because if she was grabbed out of her car, who's going to take the keys out of the ignition and neatly put them in the glove compartment with her phone and her wallet, you know? That feels very intentional and deliberate and not like something that happened quickly. Yeah, that really threw me too. But this is where we learned that like the pressure of school and, you know, not having a lot of money and being in grad school really was getting to her. And she was working as a cocktail waitress. She developed a bit of a drinking habit. She and Melinda were fighting about it all the time. I was like, can everyone lighten up about a fucking couple cocktails after work? All of this is to say that maybe she was in a mentally bad place when this happened and maybe she did go off and die by suicide. Brother Cody does tell us that she had suffered from depression and he said I don't know of any suicide attempts in the past but I know she definitely suffered from some depression from time to time now her family is left to wonder could Mandy have taken her own life I definitely didn't rule that out as a possibility 
Now we learn about the car, where they had found the car before they towed it to this impound lot. Which, side note, is really creepy because the exterior where that was, it's right by my cousin's house. Oh my God, really? Like, it was just very, very wild seeing all the exteriors of Oakland in this episode. Anyway, keep going. So we learned that the car was towed from a merge lane on a busy street, or as Christopher calls it, a well-traveled thoroughfare? I- Christopher! <laughs> I is it what the fucking decade are we? A well-traveled thoroughfare? <laughs> you go you go past the shoemakers, you go straight through to the cobbler, then you go to the, the knife sharpener through the thoroughfare. <laughs> the thoroughfare, oh my god. But the car was found parked next to a steep embankment and a small bridge that spans a deep ravine. So what they're saying is that, like, it was parked in a place, like, basically in traffic. Like, it wasn't parked on a side street. It wasn't parked in a driveway. It was, like, parked in traffic right next to a place where, like, if she had jumped into that ravine, she would have died. So that's the immediate thought. It's really crazy knowing exactly where this took place. So the police obviously do a general sweep. They search the ravine, and they didn't get any indication that she had jumped. And here is where we meet the down bitch of the episode. <laughs> Ursi Joyner of the Oakland Police Department. Are you going to say what he says? Honey, I've been living all afternoon. There are two things that I've been living on. Oxygen and this next quote for all morning since I watched it this morning. Yeah. So Ursi informs us that they could indeed rule out suicide because- Why, girl? Why? Okay. I just get so excited. I just get so excited. I just, I, you know. So he says it's kind of hard for you to kill yourself and then hide your body, but we try to keep an open mind. <laughs> We were able to pretty much rule out suicide. Uh, it's kind of hard for you to kill yourself and then dispose of your own body. Um, but once again, we keep an open mind in regards to any avenue that could have happened to Miss Stokes. What is it with these people? What is it with these people? There are several things in this world that you should keep an open mind about. I could give you a quick list, but I'm pretty sure we don't need to keep an open mind on someone who is deceased performing (laughs) any kind of activity post time of death. And the thing is, you guys, this isn't the first time we've had to say this in one of these episodes. (laughs) This This is, is in fact, the second time. It is the second. And Ursi comes up with some gems. He's really, really nails it but that I just paused it and I just bowed my head and I prayed to the ID gods and I said thank you ID gods for this gift that is Ursi Joyner <laughs> and he's a quote machine because he goes on to say you want to give the family the best case scenario but you also want to give them the worst case scenario and I was like there's gotta be a better way there's gotta be somewhere in the middle there's gotta be another way to manage these experts. like you really you're gonna sit down with the parents and be like you know what she either like definitely went off by herself on one of those solo trip she likes to go on and she's totally fine or she is mush at the bottom of that ravine it's one or the other family we're gonna do our best for you girl we're really gonna try to figure it out best of luck to all involved which in my mind no one actually needs to give me the worst case scenario ever because the scenario that I come up with in my mind immediately at all times is always exponentially worse absolutely than the possible worst case scenario at hand like do you follow my logic with that one You and I are the same person. One time, our friend Mike Jensen and I were meeting at a bar. He was 15 minutes late. I cannot tell. 
tell you the things that I knew, like the various ways he had been beaten to death on the sidewalk. When he walked in the door, I burst into tears. I cried because the train was slow coming in at 59. Yeah. So there's the right way to live your life. And yeah. then there's me and Patricia over yeah. here. <laughs> Thanks for coming to the party, you guys. That's the thing. They dip into the mania one hour a week, then they get the fuck out, girl. Yeah. They go right back to living that good old normal life. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're like, I'm going to go see what crazy sounds like, and I'm good. <laughs> They're like, some people say, we're going to go see how the other half lives. They're like, we're going to see how those two crazy idiots live. Just for an hour. Just, Just for, an for an hour. An hour. That's it. <laughs> Mandy's mother, Deb, and brother, Cody, hastily pack and try to arrange a flight from Atlanta out west. The more details that I got, the more worried I got. And after about a week, I said, I need to, I need to go. So sweet mama Deborah, of course she wanted to fly straight to Oakland. And then best friend Melinda comes and was like, I mean, the family didn't really need to come out. Her brother Cody called me and he's like, I'm coming out. I said, you don't need to come out. Melinda's kind of a downer. Melinda doesn't even like a sensible glass of Chardonnay at the end of the night. She's getting real judgy about the drinking. Doesn't think the family needs to be there. I was like, Melinda, can, hey, hey, sweetheart, can we talk for one second? One second. Just you and me. Just you and me. Yeah. If one of my family members or friends go missing, I would demand that all air traffic be suspended. Stores <laughs> would shutter. Molecules would stop vibrating. Time yeah. would stop for an extended period of time, thereby which life would not return to normal until I give it the go ahead. And guess who's not in charge of the invitation list? Melinda. She's yes. not in charge of who gets an invite and who doesn't. They didn't need to come out. I was I like, Melinda. Get thee to the coffee shop with your acupuncture textbook <laughs> study for that final. Get the fuck out of my face, Melinda. Okay. For eight hours. Go sit yeah. at that coffee shop for eight hours and call us when you're done. But wait, the family gets there and like they don't waste any time. Remember how the cops were like that ravine? No human being can climb down into that ravine. The mother is down there in five seconds. Yeah. The mother puts on her best hiking boots. She's climbing the fuck into that ravine. Her and Cody. And they are searching. And at one point, even Melinda's like, I don't even really know what we were looking for. Melinda, you're looking for Mandy! <laughs> I feel like Melinda's just trying to annoy you and me. I feel like that's all she's trying to do. Success. You've achieved your goal, Melinda. Mission accomplished, Melinda. We don't even know what we're looking for. Yeah. Could you imagine her saying that, like them hiking and her saying to Mama Deborah, I don't even know what we're looking for. And then Mama Deborah's like, bitch, first of all. You guys really didn't even have to come for this. Yeah. You didn't need to be here. <laughs> Despite hours of looking, the family comes up empty until an interesting development finally narrows the search. That's when we met the guy that had the journal. Here's the weirdest detail of the entire, any episode I've ever seen in my whole entire life. <laughs> they are, crazy. The family doesn't find Melinda in the ravine, which is good news, I think. And they're standing by the ravine posting, like, missing person flyers. And some jolly old fellow wanders down the thoroughfare and... <laughs> Basically, like, walks past, like, in Mama's telling, the guy walks past them, looks at them curiously, and walks back, and is basically like, oh, you hear about that missing girl? Yeah, you're missing the best part, sis. Okay. <laughs> this 
man suffers from short-term memory loss. So whenever he sees something or feels like it's something that he would want to remember in the future, he jots it down in his little journal. This is some memento shit. This You remember oh, like yeah. the movie where the guy's tattooing the shit all over his body because he can't remember anything? You guys, this is bananas. And like everyone, I gotta say, the family handles this really well because they are suspicious as fuck of this guy, as you should be. Some random dude shows up and he's like, I see you looking at this missing person's flyer. I'm assuming that means there's a missing person. I probably know all about it. I can't tell you anything, but my journal can. Oh my God. And the brother Cody's like, kick this guy's fucking door down. Of course, my first thought is, you know, let's follow this guy and bust in his apartment and, you know, see if she's there, you know, if he's just messing with us. He's got my sister like tied up on the couch. Right. And even though he's really helpful, have you ever seen that meme that's like, I will put you in a trunk and organize a search party for you? Yes. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Yes, of course. Trust no one. But that's kind of like what I thought about. I was like, (laughs) he was like super helpful. He gave them the time that he last saw the car. He said it was there at 3 p.m. on Sunday. So he was giving all of this information. But my shady brain was like, do not trust him. Do not trust him. Are you kidding me? Some guy shows up with a journal and no fucking memory. You don't trust this guy. And and the family, in the end, it felt like they were like, you know what? He's okay. You know what? James is fine. You know, he was just a little off the beaten path kind of guy who wrote everything down because he was dork. And the point is, they're able to, like, because of his journal, he saw the car there at like 3.15 in the afternoon on Sunday. So they're able to say whatever happened to her happened between 10.30 when she left her apartment and 3.30 when this guy saw the car. So that is helpful information. Right. So Mama Deborah insists that they go back to the apartment. The apartment that Aaron won't let the police come into. Right. And she says how neat and tidy Mandy was. And in all of her understated glory, Mama Deborah says it was not that way. I was like, oh, what a sweet way to say they were absolute pigs. We're searching for clues. And, you know, we went down in the basement. We went down in her storage unit. We looked down in the incinerator. I mean, every possible place. You know, it was an older building, so there were all kinds of nooks and crannies. And downstairs in the basement, just, you know, kind of, you know, maybe she could be in there. I don't know. And we open it and nothing. I remember that being scary. So the family is, like, searching the entire apartment building. They look in the incinerator. I was like, that is dark, sis. Yeah. I mean, they just kind of were exploring everything. I mean, even Brother Cody was like, yeah, that was scary. Yeah. Yeah. I get scared, like, going and taking my trash out at night. Of course. You live in New Jersey. You should be terrified. You move from (laughs) Oakland to Jersey. You are not safe. You are not (laughs) safe, girl. So... It's now been two weeks since the disappearance, and the cops are like, this bitch Aaron, who won't let us in the fucking house, he definitely knows more than he's telling us. The cop, your best friend, what's his name? Ursi. Ursi says, on a cooperation scale from one to ten, Aaron has been a zero. Yeah, I was like, whoa! (laughs) I said, oh, that's terrible, but I kind of also feel like that's how Ellen would describe me. (laughs) Yeah. Again, someone from the Oakland Police Department shows up later to ask Aaron questions. And again, he would not let them in. Now, listen, okay, granted, he is an addict. He probably has drugs in there. Why, even if you were an addict and you knew your sister is missing, flush the drugs, dig a hole, hide the drugs in the dirt, put it under your pillow. They're not there to look for your drugs. They're there to find your fucking sister. I know. I mean, it doesn't make any sense unless he killed her. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a very hard thing because I don't want to come down too hard on him because he's an addict and like I don't understand that behavior but also maybe he killed her so I don't know yeah I I I know know. it's 
it's real black and white. Yeah. So we're back at Sunday, November 25th, 2007 in Oakland. Now, since Aaron wouldn't let them in the apartment or answer any question or was 0% helpful, as my best friend Ursi said, they go around and they ask all the neighbors if they knew anything that happened. And the neighbors were like, yep, let me tell you about it. Sunday morning, neighbors heard and witnessed uh, uh, the argument starting about 8 a.m. and continuing on to about 10 a.m. According to neighbors, uh, arguments about uh, money issues, basically that she felt that she was helping take care of him. She also indicated that uh, he was taking her money. Yeah, the neighbors were like, they were fighting for two hours from like eight to 10. They were screaming, they were yelling. And one neighbor said he sort of blocked Mandy in to the point where she had to kind of squirm around him. As the yelling escalated, one neighbor reported that Mandy, at only five foot four, looked like she was being cornered by her brother and then made a mad dash for her apartment door. One neighbor described it as she kind of uh, did a football maneuver where she kind of faked and got around him and and uh, he was pretty close on her tail apparently when they got into the to the apartment and then all of a sudden the door slammed and nothing was heard from anybody after thereafter. Everyone described him as being really loud and aggressive and just really scary towards his sister. Well, I wrote down, oh my God, she had to do what they literally describe as a sports ball maneuver to get around him. And I said, well, the moral of this story is that I would just fucking die. If that's the only way out of a murder situation, (laughs) guess who's going to be fucking dead? When they said that she did a sports ball maneuver to like get around him and get under the apartment, I was like, is that the only option? I have to know sports now? I also said, like, we see all of these different shots of them on the balcony of their apartment building having this fight. And it's, like, really serious and it looks really scary. And I went, but is anyone else jealous that they live in a building with a pool? (laughs) I want a pool. (laughs) I haven't killed anybody. That's hard to believe your building doesn't have a pool, actually. (laughs) It's kind of hard also to believe that I haven't killed anybody. (laughs) So we've gone through this whole episode thinking that Aaron was the last person to see her, but he wasn't the last person to talk to her. So for the timeline's sake, the fight ended at about 10. She left the house at about 10.30, so says brother Aaron. Now, at about 10.45 California time, she had called her boyfriend, John, and said that she was super upset with her brother and that they had gotten in a really big argument. She also said she was in the car, and then the call dropped mid-conversation. John tried again and again to get back in touch with her, but he could not get through. And at 11.20, her phone is either shut off off or goes dead because there's no reception that's able to be made and everything is going straight to voicemail. And like, I don't know. This all seemed very like, show me the receipts. And like, you say you have the phone records. I want to see them, you know? Because like, are we sure this call to the boyfriend was on the same day? Because just because she references a fight with Aaron doesn't mean, like, I bet they were fighting all the fucking time. Especially like, we're going to learn that they were both addicted to drugs at this point. They're both fighting over money. They probably were fighting every single day. So anytime she talks to the boyfriend, she's probably complaining about a fight with her brother. So I just want a little bit more evidence. But to the mom, this is proof to the mother that Aaron did not do this. John told me that she did tell him about the argument on the phone. So I do know that she talked to John after the argument and he told me she was in the car. I'm going to agree with you that I think that that the mom is a little bit denying how much Aaron was involved in this. So they also get a hold of her bank records and her bank records prove even to be more confusing than we had thought. Bank records don't lie. 
perspective murderers and a lie. So they learned that the day she went missing at 11.28 a.m., three blocks from her apartment, a purchase was made. Then another purchase was made at 11.51, only five blocks from where the car was left, where her car was originally found. Then there's more bank activity throughout the day she was missing and the day after. So they followed all the activity and followed up with the surveillance footage and the surveillance footage revealed that it wasn't Mandy making any of these purchases. It was... Of course it was Aaron. So the thing is, again, like, this looks super suspicious. It's like, he killed her, and now he's emptying out her bank accounts. Like, we see this all the time. Then we're hearing that, like, well, she would let him use her bank card a lot to get money because he was down on his luck. He's a drug addict. So, like, if he doesn't have any money or any source of income, of course he's using, like, whatever means necessary to get cash to support his habit, but, like, it's just too coincidental. Like, we can't write everything off to him being an addict. You know what I mean? I know. He won't let them into the apartment because he's an addict. He's stealing her money because he's an addict. Like, at some point, we need, I don't know, there's got to be a way to get to the bottom of it. Right, but that's not all. He was also writing and cashing checks to himself for thousands of dollars, up to and maybe even more than seven thousand dollars he had stolen from his sister yeah and insult to injury in the reenactment of like learning about this we see aaron sitting at the table in the apartment and he's drinking coffee and it's french press coffee girl of course it's the fucking fancy kind i was like that's mandy's money that's mandy's goddamn coffee (laughs) i went he's a murderer with champagne taste we see it every time all the time what was that woman's name deborah on snapped she just kept on stealing she couldn't (laughs) stop Listen, Aaron, he was on heroin, right? Heroin will make you not act like yourself. It'll make you make bad decisions. It'll make you steal. It will make you get money by whatever means necessary. But like, at what point do we stop making that excuse? And everybody makes that excuse. The brother, the mother, the friend. I'm just like, I get it. I'm sorry that someone is an addict, but I'm more sorry that Mandy is missing. Aaron maintains his innocence to the police but also continues to deny them access to the apartment he shares with his sister. Mandy's family is exasperated. In addition, since Mandy recently gave notice that she was leaving, and because her lease was up, the landlord has promised the apartment to new tenants. The family has to, like, pack up the apartment because, like, Mandy had already given her notice at the apartment. Yeah, and then, so I just imagine the landlord being like, Hello? <laughs> Hello? Yes, I'm so sorry that your your daughter is missing, but I rented this bitch. And so, I, I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but pack this shit up. I, someone is moving in on the first. And the reason this is such a problem is because the cops have not been able to check the apartment for evidence, and the family is clearing it out. I don't understand how the family is enforcing him to, like, let the cops come in. But that's what happens. They clean out the entire place. And finally, finally, on Wednesday, December 12th, the cops bring Aaron down to the station for questioning, where your best friend's got another fucking choice line. I love this guy. So, Ursi, my down bitch, was basically, like, in not so many words, like, you know, when somebody goes missing in someone's family, usually they charter trains, hire planes, get dogs, get helicopters. They will do everything. They will search high and low for that family member. And yeah, Aaron basically did none of that. And then he goes on to say... (laughs) Mr. Stokes uh, was basically cavalier. He didn't seem really taken aback by the fact that he was at the homicide section and being interviewed by homicide investigators during a homicide investigation. 
Ursi can't say homicide enough times. Like, Aaron is selling shit, and Ursi is not buying any of it. I love that down bitch. The cops finally, on Friday, December 14th, get a warrant to search the apartment. And, like, there's not much to be seen, because by this point, like, the family has cleared everything out. But they're doing forensic testing, and they get, like, they get a horror's worth of swabs, and they're testing the evidence. We are told they find biological evidence. We don't know what that is. I know. They kept saying biological evidence. I was like, is it blood? Is it pee? Is it semen? Someone tell me what it is. And then we learned that, like, it looks to the cops like it had been tried to have been cleaned up, but it wasn't cleaned up well enough. They were able to get it. They get into her car where they say they found the same kind of biological evidence. So they're starting to connect the dots here. And so they're saying that, like, the cops really think Aaron did this. And they're building a case on circumstantial evidence. And they're saying he's the last person that was known to see her. He refused to let the police in the apartment. Like, his story about the fight contradicts everything all the witnesses said. He drained her bank account. He's forging checks. There's biological evidence in the car and in the apartment. And the cops are like, we're going to take it. We're taking it to the DA and we're going to try to bring this guy up on charges. And not to mention, during his nine-hour interrogation, he was hostile. He was withholding information. He was wicked agitated. But they also said he seemed rehearsed and calculated. I was like, bitch, you got to make that second nature. If you're going to be telling lies, you better have that shit rehearsed down to a science so it looks like you're just talking off the cuff. But you know what, though? It doesn't matter because the DA says we don't have any actual evidence that she's dead. And so, they're like, we can't do anything with this. They get nothing on him and he never is charged with this murder. I mean, the thing is, I mean, this is the main thing. They actually can't even prove she's deceased. Right. Because the Oakland Police Department definitely believes because they kept saying the biological evidence was in the car and they think that possibly her body might have been transported. I'm guessing that the biological evidence is blood. Like, yeah, I'm just guessing, even though they never yeah. say that. And, you know, it's really sad because Mama Deborah is just sort of in a tailspin and she's sort of in denial and so is the brother. And Aaron still maintains his innocence. Apparently, now he lives in Oklahoma City. Who cares your garbage? He was just recently arrested on fraud charges in Oklahoma City, by the way. Yeah, I mean, congrats. Great. You, <laughs> life is going great for you. Wait, is there any updates? Do we have any idea what happened? So one detail that I did find that wasn't included in the episode was that when the car was towed, the battery was dead. I found that in some side research, not in the episode. So either Mandy got out of the car and left it in the middle of traffic with the engine running and the car died that way, or we kind of have to try and picture a situation. You know, the car was left running because someone other than Mandy was maybe ditching it there. But don't forget that the keys were in the glove box. Yeah. So then maybe someone found the car running and put the keys in the glove box. All of this evidence is very, very confusing. The only other thing that popped into my mind, and this is totally a side goog. Again, I am from Oakland. Oakland, there are parts of Oakland that are very dangerous, that are very crime ridden. So in my head, I thought about carjackings. Yeah. And that year in Oakland in 2007, they were 884 reported carjackings. Oh my God. She is still missing. This is a cold case in the Oakland Police Department. But obviously, if anybody has any information, please get a hold of the Oakland Police Department with any information they have for Mandy Stokes. Oh my God. All right, bring us up. Say something funny. I mean, if I had one wish dealing with all of these cases and sort of all the sadness that surrounds these cases, my one wish would be for you to stop envisioning my brother naked. Oh, I had stopped, but now he's back. Hey, girl. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, you guys, that was season four, episode six. Look, if you want more of Ellen and me, and you know you do, join us on the Patreon. We call it the Drama Club. You get three full bonus episodes every month, and you get our Friday Night Live, the thing that we do on Instagram every Friday night. You get that as a podcast Monday morning. Uh, and you can join our close friends group. Patricia and I do some extra content. It's usually that's just That's on co- the Instagram. Tell them it's on the Instagram. Oh, on the Instagram. If you're a bestie, if you're a Breckenridge bestie, you get to get more content from us on the Instagram. It's normally just us talking shit shit from our respective homes but you know it's super fun today it was actually ellen and i doing staring contests back and forth at each other just like with different captions calling the other one rude yeah i mean it's just funny when you get into a staring contest with me it's such a like david and goliath story like you'll never win but it's so cute that you try also join us on the facebook group it's called the obsessed with disappeared podcast discussion group we have talks we have memes we have chats we're in there all the time come find us there we'd love to see you we love interacting with you we love you so much thank you for listening how and say goodbye goodbye you guys we love you so much see she's a talker this one she's a real talker love you love you guys bye nolan nolan you bitch what is he crying about literally you're brand new all right those eyes they're intoxicating you could get it patrick hines you could get it do you want it stop it no i've seen all the goods and i will take a pass i'm gonna take a pass i'm gonna punch melinda in the throat i don't i'm now i'm angry now i'm pissed she rang my buzzer and i'm here for it anyway (laughs) 